So we wait as I ask the kids, for what or for whom? And the scripture says in his title or part of his title that we wait for the mighty God. We'll return back to Isaiah this morning. I want to give you a little bit more context of Isaiah. This wonderful passage comes to us 2,700 years ago, 700 years before Jesus even showed up. But those days were dark. God's people were split into two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. And Isaiah was a prophet to Judah. Assyria, which was this huge global power, was invading all around. The king of Israel made a deal. He kind of sold out the north or Israel. The king of Judah, his name was Ahaz, he was truly wicked. Like, I mean, like heinous, fiendish types of evil. He killed his own son in sacrifice to the gods around. Not to Yahweh, but to the gods around. Not too far before this passage in the same, what they call oracle in Isaiah, he describes what life like was in Judah, Isaiah does. Distressed and hungry, famished, in rage, cursing their king and their God. Only distress and darkness and fearful gloom thrust into utter darkness. And then, this oracle, called the Oracle of Emmanuel, one of the three sons born in several oracles beforehand, this third son, Emmanuel, is described as such. There will be no gloom. For her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, and the Galilee of the Gentiles, or Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff that's been on his shoulders, the rod of the oppressor, you've broken them as in the days of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the good fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called, and remember, this is one long title that we're dividing up for, into four places. This, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal, the passion of the Lord of hosts will do this. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word. Kids, I need you to sing again. Ready? My God is so big. 
so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. There you go. You got to get the clap in. The punctuation is very important. We'll get back. Today, for those of you who like to take notes, we're going to talk about the mighty God who, come, who came. And we're going to talk about his mighty birth, his mighty life, his mighty death, and his mighty resurrection. Birth, life, death, resurrection. Mighty in birth. Seems like a weird thing. When Luke starts to tell the story of this, somewhere in the back of his mind, it's got to be the Isaiah prophecy. He says, the Holy Spirit will come to you, Mary, come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so that the Holy One to be born will be called the Son, capital S, of God, capital G. It's a fulfillment, a declaration of the fulfillment of this prophecy 700 years before. You're like, I'm in church, yeah, I know that's, I just, it needs to just sink in. The New Testament's claim is that Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus, or Yezu ben Yasof, would be the child, the Galilean dude, would be this child who would be named Mighty God. Let it sink in. Because Luke is either insane or he's deceived, which is a kind of a form of insane. He's lying for some reason, or he's telling the truth. All options are available. All options are available for, for, for as legitimate things to think about. Unless the mighty God does something in one's heart, in one's mind, in one's soul, so they might believe. But it does sound really wild. And the testimony, consistent testimony of the scripture, not just in Luke and other places, is that this is actually true. And that this thing changes the world. The point here is that Jesus was a baby boy, born into a poor and temporarily displaced family, trying to escape a tyrannical ruler. This is the son that's given to us. In some ways, it's very normal human nature. By natural lineage, he's the son of David, son of Joseph, son of Mary. Or as I heard one preacher say, on his mama's side, he's a baby boy, which made me automatically think 8.7 ounce baby Jesus. For those of you who have ears to hear, let them hear. The difference is that this child is also the only begotten son of God. One with the Father and the Spirit, equal in power and glory, the second person of the Trinity. And so on his father's side, He's the eternal, mighty God. The, the, it's the birth of the, the prophecy and then the birth of Jesus is not some ancient king who is historically noteworthy. It's so much more than that. Something revolutionary has occurred. Something cosmically transformative. The baby born that first Christmas is God became flesh dwelling among us. Like I said, it's in the oracle of Isaiah under the Emmanuel, God with us, who was forever now embodied in this person, Jesus of Nazareth. 
Let that sit. Question it if you need to. But that is the testimony of the scriptures. That a God, one writer says, upon a throne would be an infant in a cradle. That the thundering uh, creator be a weeping babe and a suffering man are such expressions of mighty power that they astonish the men of earth and the angels in heaven. That's the point. Wrestle with it. It's okay. But what the New Testament does with this passage is say it's not just in the birth of Jesus, it's in the life of Jesus. And I'm going to say something, I, don't, I hope it doesn't come out trite. Jesus had an extraordinary life. You're like, you're in church, you're supposed to say that. No, it was extraordinary. And it was extraordinary in the extremes. Because he had a mighty hard time. From no room in the inn, to no rest, no place to put his head, from no justice in his trial, no water to quench his thirst, from crowds with these hard rocks ready to stone him, to the hard nails that were hammered into his hands and his feet, just to torture him. And, and yet at the same time, the extraordinary reality is that the Gospels reveal this mighty God constantly at work, pushing back on the forces of evil around the world, in this world, and in toward him. It's the hypocrisy of his religious leaders, his own people, the liberation of the captive, sight for the blind, good news for the poor. And so it was not just mighty hard, it was mighty powerful. Jesus turned water into wine in Cana. He healed a centurion's paralyzed servant in Capernaum, and he didn't even see the person he healed. He healed a man's withered hand on the Sabbath and created a bunch of problems for himself. He calmed a stormy sea. He threw some demons into a herd of pigs. He raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He fed 5,000 and 4,000. He spit into mud and wiped it on somebody's eyes. And they saw. He raised his friend Lazarus from Bethany. One of his ornery followers cut the ear off the dude that was coming to arrest him. And he picked the ear up, stuck it back on his head, and said, this is not the way we do things here. That's not in the Bible, but the we thing is. The action is, but not the we. But everyone got it. Now, if you've grown up in a world that, that prizes a kind of skepticism, critical thinking, um, an anti-supernatural bent, um, a, a, not, not a materialism, but an exclusive materialism, then this is going to all hit you really weird. And that's okay. I grew up in this world. I was taught to question everything. And my church experience was negligible at best, besides Christmas and Easter, until I was 11. Uh, I never went to church. And then my mom 
had a conversion experience. It was really weird and beautiful. And then she took us to the church that was drier than cracker dust. It was just incredibly difficult to be a part of. But they had the reading of the gospel every single week. I was too smart, too trained in skepticism to believe these kind of supernatural things. But somehow, by God's kindness, I couldn't shake the stories of Jesus. I was enthralled. Mighty in his teaching, his love, his humility, his mercy, his advocacy. Even if I was struggling with the supernatural part, and then again by God's grace, I realized I wasn't that smart after all. And I frankly wasn't skeptical enough because I did not, I was not skeptical of my skepticism. Because that needed some analysis. I had no imagination for something I couldn't wrap my head around, which will always mess you up. And that's when the Spirit, with me not wrapping my head around something, wrapped himself around me. And I saw it. I saw his power. The healing that he brings. That he was meek and lowly, but like a bear, strong and mighty. And there is even might in meekness. He was mighty in tenderness towards people, the ones he taught and lived with. Amid all the political, religious opposition he had, the jealousy of his own leaders, the ambivalence of Rome and then murder by Rome, the constant misunderstanding of him by the people who wanted to follow him. And in it, he shows the mighty God of love and mercy. And then you know what they did, what we did. They didn't want this kind of mighty love. You might say that his might was more curated or nuanced than their hopes and fears, which led some to betray him, others to stay silent and ignore him, and others to plot his death and kill him, which is the most ironic part of the mighty God that we find in Jesus, and that he was mighty in death. It's a strange thing to talk about a man being mighty when he was tried, tortured, humiliated, and executed, all to cheering crowds. Any person in those crowds would have not thought mighty or God, but pathetic. It's hard to see how the government was on his shoulders. It sure looked like the increase of his government had ended. You know, he's arrested by these religious and state-sanctioned power leaders and and you remain silent for the most of it, it doesn't look mighty. When there's literally a, 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 a provision for like a get-out-of-jail-free card for Jesus, and the crowds get to vote on it, he loses by a landslide. And they pick a notorious criminal to free instead of him. That don't seem mighty. When they nail you to a cross to both humiliate and execute you, and some of your words are, I am thirsty. God, why have you forsaken me? And it is finished. 
it doesn't sound mighty. And that, in fact, is the richness of, richness of God's might. It, it doesn't work, God's mightiness. The mighty God doesn't work in our economy of power and strength. The government on his shoulders does not require a weapon or a vote or large rallies or military or money. The withholding of power is mighty. This is why Jesus says in his trial, my kingdom is not of this world. Look, if it were, my folk would come, my servants would fight, and you wouldn't be able to deliver me. But my kingdom's not from here. It's from out of this world, literally. And this is where the might of his mighty death comes in. He's not playing by our might matrix. He's, his might is not about dominance, but it's about love and mercy and restoration to God. And yes, to love his enemies. And if I'm reading scripture like, rightly, I think I am, we are all by nature his enemies. Not from his side, per se, but from ours. We, we don't want a reign that is not our own. We don't want laws that we don't make up. Which is why we then use our power to coerce and cajole and confiscate, do all sorts of awful things. But his might is a might that transforms his enemies into friends and loyal servants and loved ones and family. It's a mercy that is filled with justice. His might pardons sin and propels us to live in a kingdom of grace. Kids, our God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. In his mighty death, he absorbs all the hate of the world and our sin and our folly. And he absorbs it into his body. What power? Taking on himself all that we deserved. Death itself. And at his death, he let evil rage against him. And so, even then, he knew what he was doing. He wasn't just thirsty and forsaken and declared it. He was, but he wasn't just. He looked at the rage of those that were trying to kill them, kill him, and he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then that changes everything about the words, it is finished. Because Jesus and the Father and the Spirit knew what they were doing. Because he's the mighty God. And you see the mighty God one more time in Jesus, in the scriptures, and the promise of the new advent, the second coming. And that's tied to the resurrection and his return. It was kind of the linchpin for me. I really dug Jesus as a leader, as a thinker, as a rabble rouser. This whole resurrection from the dead thing, that was hard. But Jesus died and rose again from the dead. Again, put your materialist hat on it and say, that's not supposed to happen, but it is yet claimed to him. The question was whether or not I would believe it. I could believe it. And yeah, 
I did all the work because I was a good skeptic, and I, I read all the books that kind of said the case for the resurrection, and there's an incredible book out there by N.T. Wright on the resurrection. I recommend it to you fully. There's plenty of stuff out there, but that wasn't it. Because that's not how we actually learn most things or trust most things. Actually, the mighty God supernaturally, by his own power, convinced me. And I believed. In fact, I believed, and then he convinced me. Understanding always follows trust. We can have a whole discussion about that later if you want. But that's the way it works. And I can tell you most of those arguments... I can tell you mostly, I just saw a new. I saw how it worked. It wasn't about it working. It was that I saw it, and I believed. And guess what? If you believe something as ridiculous as the resurrection of the dead, the walking on water thing and the 5,000 ain't that big of a deal. It's just not. Children, in your devotionals, it says... His mighty work showed the Lord's healing power was with Jesus, was in Jesus. He healed the blind, the sick in body and mind and soul. Then he showed the mightiest act of power with his resurrection from the dead. As mighty God, Jesus rose from the dead and now sits on the right hand of God in heaven, high above all, above every authority, power, and ruler. God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. In our devotionals this week, Monday's reading was this from Hebrews. Long ago, many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us through the Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Through him also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his God's nature. This means when you have all these questions, when you're not sure what's going on, if you're worried about some other passage somewhere, if you want to know what God's like, you just look at Jesus. That becomes the filter and the lens by which we see everything else. Because it tells us to. And he upholds the universe by the power of his word. And after making purification for our sins and the mighty God act of his own death and the mighty act vindication in his resurrection, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 